You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but to some, it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to episode 45 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. Glad that you're joining us this week. Um, And before we get started, just want to do a quick bit of housekeeping here. If this is the first time you're tuning in, or if for some reason you're a longtime listener and you just decided to skip to episode 45, I highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 44, because this is the second part of that episode. And so we're going to go ahead and jump into it and talk about it like you know what we're talking about here. So, so, so do what you want, but none of this will make sense without the other episode. <laughs> don't, don't leave a bad review on our iTunes because you don't understand what's going on. That's on you. We gave you fair warning. Speaking of which, if you go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, a written review, we are dangerously close to having... Or no, stars, the star rating. Star yeah. rating. If you could please so be so kind as to give us a star rating. We are super, super close to getting 100. Nine short of getting 100. And if you're feeling extra generous, a written review goes a long way into telling the algorithm that this is worthwhile content. So if you believe that, go ahead and do that for us. We would uh, be much appreciated. But jumping right into the episode, because I suspect we're going to need all the time we can get. Let me do a quick recap. I said we were going to act like you knew what we were talking about, but just in case, here's a quick recap. Last week, we talked about how the verses at the end of chapter nine of Genesis didn't make a ton of sense. And it's kind of confusing where Noah gets drunk and then Ham follows him into Ham, his youngest son follows him into his tent, sees him naked, brags about it to His brothers, Noah wakes up and goes, guess what? Your youngest son, Canaan, he is cursed and he's going to be everybody's servant. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we talked briefly about different interpretations that were floating around out there. Just remind us of the typical ones. Yeah, we uh, we talked about that typically people go to it and just uh, read it as written and say, okay, this was a voyeuristic uh, encounter here where Ham is just basically a peeping Tom and Noah didn't really like that, which I gotta be honest with you. I wouldn't like that either. I don't know if I'd go so far as to curse my grandson, but I also wouldn't. And how would you know? Right. Yeah. Also. Yeah. We talked about how that did, it didn't really make sense in light of a critical reading of the text. And also we talked about the possibility that Ham had gone in there and he had done something terrible to Noah, you know, either sexually assaulted him or castrated him, something along those lines, which again, doesn't make a lot of sense reading the text because it says that Noah was unaware of what was happening until he woke up and then saw what had happened to him. And, you know, you, it doesn't matter how drunk you are, you're going to know if something like that (laughs) is happening to you. Yeah. And then finally we landed on, you know, what I'm going to say is, it's, it's, it's what I think is the most well, likely. We didn't get to land. You, you, you cut us off mid-flight, so we didn't get to land, but we moved to yeah, a new we, option. Yeah, we, we pointed the finger and we accused Ham of some pretty crazy stuff. We are of the opinion that here's what happened. Noah gets drunk, goes into his tent, which we 
upon a critical reading of the Hebrew, we're saying it's not just his tent, it's his wife's tent. It's her and tent. Yeah. Her tent. He follows, he follows him in there. He violates his mother, goes outside, brags about what he's done to his brothers. And Noah wakes up and sees what's happened and realizes what's going on and says, okay, guess what? Your line, your youngest son, Canaan, they're cursed. And so that's, that is a pretty hefty charge to lay against Ham. We know Ham is not a great character at this point, but that's, you know, even though I'm the one who pointed the finger and said, this is what's going on. Um, I'm hoping that you guys have some evidence to back up. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, you, you, everyone loves a scandal. You got in on the hype without, uh, without having evidence. <laughs> you know, you know what I got, I got caught up in the moment and I was ready to start slinging accusations. Gandalf's like, I have no idea what actually happened, but these guys seem pretty worked up about it. Yes. <laughs> fight, 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 fight. Yeah. <laughs> this story will never make a children's book. No children's Bible, picture Bible, none of that. It will, you know, this story will not be in there. And it's all there. There, there is no like willow tree statue <laughs> of, of this at the Lifeway stores. The, the prayer of Jabez gets a paperweight, but the curse on Canaan does not. Right. Yeah, he doesn't even make it. In there. You don't make a paperweight for this passage. Um, so and again, uh, to, to Gandalf's point, uh, really, the only evidence in, in favor of this third view that, uh, again, essentially that Ham, go, Noah becomes intoxicated, goes into not his tent, but her tent, his wife's tent. And while he is there, it's, the text says that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness. Um, uh, so the only evidence, to my knowledge, that we offered last time is, again, in the Hebrew text, the consonantal form suggests that at the end of 21, it is not his tent, but her tent. Uh, vowels are added later by the Masoretes in the 5th to 8th century CE. This is hundreds and hundreds, more than a thousand years later. Um, and that leaves a weird text form that I don't think recurs anywhere else and, and has led most translations to go with his tent. But if it's her tent, you have a third character, Noah's wife, Ham's mother in the equation. So how in the world can we leap from that to saying, yeah, and all those other interpretations don't make sense, we're pretty strong on this one because that, you know, if, if I'm if I'm a listener, that's not a whole lot to go on. Well, you guys alluded to it before I cut you off. I think it was um, I think it was you, Nathan, before I cut us off due to time. But we were talking about um, uh, seeing the nakedness of your father as being a euphemism or an idiom for something else. Oh, yeah, that is where we left off. Yeah, it, it, I was telling Matt, it reminded me um, there was a Pauline scholar, uh, N.T. Wright, and I'm not here to agree or disagree with him. He wrote a book uh, back in the 90s called What St. Paul Really Said. And years later, I was listening to a panel discussion with N.T. Wright's take on Paul. And uh, one of the scholars was dialoguing with him on the title of that book. He said, the problem is not that we don't know what St. Paul said. The question is, what did St. Paul mean? In other words, having the words is one thing, discerning the meaning of the words is another act altogether, right? right. And so when, when we come to a text, uh, we have to know not only what's being communicated, but what mode it's being communicated in. Uh, and, and you often have figures of speech. So if I, you know, if I told you guys, man, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Are you going to think that I could actually eat a horse? 
No, right. no, no but I might be going to the Western Sizzlin, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in the mood for a big meal, but that horse is not on the menu there. You understand, because that's common enough, that's a common hyperbole, you understand um, that I'm just in the mood for a big meal. Uh, on the other side, we even had a previous episode titled, Adam Bought the Farm. Right. Uh, bought, mm. bought the Farm is a euphemism for what? Dying. Dying, yeah. Um, so the question is, when we come to this passage and we hear that Ham looked upon his father's nakedness, is that direct speech or is this a figure of speech? And the argument we're making is they would have understood this as a figure of speech. And there's a lot of reasons, uh, both in the text and around the text, to think that that's the case. Yeah, in fact, looking in Leviticus, uh, Nathan, why don't you read Leviticus, isn't it 2011? Yeah, and uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, and I w- I w- I'll say something else after I go this, but Le- Le- Leviticus 20, verse 11, uh, again, this is still in the ESV, says, if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Ah. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So there it's putting those two ideas back to back directly in line with one another. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Uh, and again, I'll, uh, it's connecting the euphemism with another statement. Here's what, yeah, here's what it is. Here's what it represents. If you do this, this is what you're doing, and this is what results from it. What's interesting is um, a lot of our translations, uh, ha- even literal translations, don't they? They still, tra- you know, they still translate this in an unliteral way. So. Um, the C- the CSB says, if a man, uh, and I preach from the CSB, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has violated the intimacy that belongs to his father. You, mi- you miss the key wording, though, though, don't you? Mm. Um, the Lexham English Bible, uh, I would say it's pretty literal here. As for a man who lies for his father's wife, he has exposed his father's nakedness. Right. Um, the NIV says, if a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Mm-hmm. The New Living Translation says, if a man violates his father by having sex with one of his father's wife, uh, and, and just goes from there. It, it kind of puts the two ideas together. So yeah. It's really translating uh, and interpreting the euphemism for you. So as an English reader, you don't miss what's going on here. So that you don't come to it and go, what is this uncovering? Nick? What in the world? But the but the Hebrew phrasing is 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 what you find in Genesis nine, right? Looking upon your father's nakedness, regardless of how that's translated in English. Interesting, Matt. We were even talking beforehand. Even the Latin Vulgate goes with this very literally. Oh, if yeah. a man sleeps with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's uh, nakedness uh, or indecency. Uh, the same thing with the Greek Septuagint. It's it's the two ideas: sleeping with your father's wife. And uncovering his nakedness, uh, the figure of speech and and the literal. Um, that's a bombshell for me. That's yeah. a big that's lock a, him up guilty. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but can I can I ask a question? Sure. Like in hand in hand with that, let's let's pretend we're the good people of Israel, right? Uh, and God has brought us out of Egypt, and He's brought us to Mount Sinai. And at the end of uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter forty, God comes and dwells in the camp, and then He's. Once he's in the camp, he's giving us more to the law and how we're supposed to live holy before him. And he gets to sexual ethics 
Why is the very first sexual ethic outlined in Leviticus 18? Yeah, don't sleep with your father's wife. In other words, if 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 we were in an abstract vacuum where you know where you didn't have all these things to avoid, why make that the first place you go unless there's you have somewhere in your shared history where things went wrong because of that? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, that's good. And then also, Nathan. I don't know if you said it in last week's episode or it was in a, just our conversation, talking about even the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul makes a huge deal about the man taking his father's wife. Yeah, so there's so many things in Corinthians that surprise us. Like, everyone says they want to be the New Testament church, but no one means Corinth. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know no, no one wants to be uh, the, the Corinthian church from the New Testament because they had all these problems. I mean, when I think of Corinth, I, I think of Paul having to defend the resurrection. <laughs> And yet, some of the things yeah. that Paul leads off with in Corinth surprise us. Right. Uh, the first thing he goes with is, I hear there are divisions among you. Right. Like, Paul starts with unity over defending the resurrection. He builds to that, but he starts with the unity of the church. Um, and then you get to Paul talking about uh, sexual ethics in the church and the ways they're getting it wrong. Why is the first example he gives a man sleeping with his father's wife and not being held accountable for it. Right. Why is that such a big deal to Paul unless he's got at least one Old Testament? Again, Paul is a student of the Scriptures. Paul, Paul has seen this thing go off the rails through this exact dynamic. What stories is he hearkening back to? Just as the English put the Hebrew to the side, put the euphemisms to the side, if, if we have this idea in our head that... Uncovering your father's nakedness. Okay, this is what that means. All right, is it, does it now at least the story make more sense that Noah is scandalized by what has happened and that Shem and Japheth walk backwards so not to see their father's nakedness and then cover their father's nakedness with a blanket and the, like. All of a sudden, this starts to make sense. Like, well, if their mom is laying exposed in there, that they're showing their mom courtesy and decency. Like, people's actions start to make more yes. sense. They start to become in like the realm of reality. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and can I also say one of the things that we talked about last week is again, Genesis is structured by those totally doth formulas. You have you have contained sagas in between each of those new genealogies, right? And the Noah story is the flood story. Where did things get off the rails with the flood? It came with a sexual union that should not have occurred. The sons of God and the daughters of men. What an appropriate bookend to this saga if it's not just a drunken scene, if it's a sexual union that should not have occurred. And also to tie it back oh. even further, though, in both occurrences, it's war on the seed. Because it's this is we're talking about progeny here. It was the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim. And we took a position on that. But regardless of what your thoughts are on that, that contributed to the flood and its wickedness. Well, as this story is going forward, because we've talked in previous weeks, don't forget that they are reading Genesis while they're living the Exodus. Canaan is going to be a hostile seed towards the people of Israel. There, there's going to be enmity between the Canaanites and the Israelites going forward. So this is just more evidence of the two seeds, the seed of woman 
and the the seed of the serpent, I think. And so, and for me, there are two options. Um, again, Canaan could be cursed either because he is the youngest son of Ham and Ham is the youngest son of Noah because Ham has done a thing. Uh, Noah is taking it out on Ham's youngest son, Canaan. In other words, my youngest son forgot his place, so his youngest son is bound to a place of servitude. Right. Or you could make the uh, supposition. It's, it's up in the air. I'm not, I don't come down firmly. Is it possible to read in the text that Canaan is the result of Ham's action? Right. And it would seem to suggest that early in the passage, the evidence of that could be, this is not case in point, but it could be that in verse 18, when it says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. The fact that Canaan is listed there amongst the sons of Noah and not the grandsons, maybe it's because... In other, in other words, there, we're, we're dealing with one generation, right. and yet dealing with that generation, you say, oh, but, but Ham, Ham fathered Canaan. But you're listing it at the same time that you're talking about that generation. You're not listing it when you're unpacking all the generations in chapter 10. Hmm. So to, to that point, Matt, am I hearing you correctly? It would, be, it would be suggesting, is it possible that Canaan resulted from this union of, of Ham looking on his father's nakedness by sleeping with his wife? And frankly, of the resources I've looked at that have taken this view, that's the view that they take. But I think either of these work. Uh, and, and, and honestly, there's not, there's not a whole lot of stuff here. We're looking at, you know, we don't even know the divine time period of Genesis chapter nine, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. I mean, how long was that saga? Was that 10 months? Was that a month? Was that a week? Was that a few days? We don't know. And, uh, again, to the, to the other, uh, interpretations, uh, the idea that uh, Ham had sodomized or castrated Noah. It's so hard to imagine Noah sleeping through that. But if Ham's actions were not with Noah, but Noah's wife, Noah might have slept through that, right? right? Uh, and, and, and I love, I, I don't want to overplay this point, but it's interesting to me how the text words it, because in the aftermath, it says, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew, Yada, what his youngest son had done, does that make you think of another scene? Sure, Adam and Eve. Yeah, they they do something involving fruit that they weren't supposed to consume that way, mm. and then they came to know something, a, a knowledge that was corrupting. Right. And 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 now you have another fruit scene. Noah grows a vineyard, uh, produces wine, gets intoxicated on the wine, and and the end result is he comes to know something. That's going to have a very corrupting effect. Hmm. But, and, and they also both came to no nakedness. <laughs> oh, Yahtzee. Yeah. yeah. So there's just one more thing that I don't understand here, because it doesn't matter which view you take, one of these three, there's still something that doesn't quite add up in my mind. And that is, what is the motivation here? Like, we, we know that no matter what, Ham has done something bad that Noah doesn't like. But in all three cases, it doesn't really makes sense in my mind what is driving the motivation here because Ham goes into the tent, he does whatever this thing is, and he comes out and he then he brags about it. And so like I just want to know like what is going right. on inside of Ham's mind? Because if I'm Ham, like I just like I've already witnessed firsthand very freshly what happens 
like when God sees wickedness on the earth. And man, what is going to motivate me to pull a stunt like this right after God has just finished, you know, wiping out all of mankind well, for wickedness? Also, remember the the world that Ham grew up in was the old world, not the new one. So That's true. the influences that he would have had. But I think those are those are great questions. I think the best way to say this is this is a power move by Ham, because this is not the only time that this happens in the Bible. One of the disconnects that we have as Westerners is that we think of sexual sin very differently than the ancients and even modern Middle Eastern people. Uh, far, we think way more individualistically when it comes to sexual sin. They think more corporately, the community aspect. Uh, Gandalf, you and I went to the Holy Land together. Do you remember our tour guide who uh, was from Arab culture and was talking about that if someone's son, for instance, violates another person's another family's daughter, like their whole family has to leave town. Not, I mean, not just like the immediate family, but aunts and uncles and cousins. She was talking about how this had happened and there were like medical doctors and dentists that had to leave their practice because something their nephew had done. Yes, I remember that. And just because this, this big community, they, they interpret things in a, communal way that I, we don't as Westerners, we look far more in individualistically on sins like this. But this this reoccurs in, in several places. Uh, number one that comes to mind is Jacob and his son, Reuben. Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, sleeps with his father's wife or concubine, Bilhah, and it, because of it, Jacob slights Reuben's inheritance. You can read about it at the Genesis uh, inheritance. And, and it raises the question: what What was Reuben's motive? What was he wanted? He he, he was laying claim to his father's inheritance. In other words, that's right. the punishment fit the crime. For Reuben, by sleeping with his father's woman, he was making a claim to not just his father's possession in terms of his woman, but what that represented. He's making a claim to his father's estate. Yes, that's absolutely it. So it is is not just the physical act, but it's what Nathan just said, laying claim to his father's estate. You can see this also. In fact, I've got it pulled up of what it means to sleep with someone else's wife is to lay claim to their estate. Uh, kings did this in the ancient world. In fact, after... David sins with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet confronts him. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, who was the king's, the king who served before David and the place he took. Verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much more. So the point I want to emphasize there is that when God is confronting David for stealing the wife of Uriah, he's saying, listen, when you took the inheritance of Saul, you took his wives. So he's talking about inheriting the throne, was claiming the kingdom, and also laying claim to the wives of the king. Also, this goes forward, and this is what there's a power move that and, and time out. This is time out. This is the reverse 
You know, in other words, if, if you wanted to signify that someone was an heir apparent or intended to rule, how, how were, how was power legitimately transferred among leading families in the ancient world? Oh, by marriages. By an ordained, a state religious sponsored marriage. Right. You know, if a king married off his daughter to someone else, that was a legitimate way of saying, hey, part of my kingdom is going to you. Right. So all we're saying is that the reverse is also true. An illegitimate power grab is by uh, seeking a king's daughter or a king's wife. Right. Right. And and again, going back to Genesis 9, what's their context? The world is wiped out. They land on they land on the mountain and the whole world is up for grabs. So the question is, who will inherit the world? Mm. Ham is making a power grab. Yeah. He is making a power grab. Also, remember the the story about, and we talked about it a few weeks ago in church, Absalom. Absalom laying claim to his father's kingdom. Yeah, what's the first thing he does when he at, goes against David? Yeah, at the advice yeah. of Ahithophel, sleeps with David's wives on the, the rooftop of David's palace. Uh, again, why, why um, is he doing that? So as a Westerner, again, we just are sit, simply, we just go to the sexual part of it and say, well, that's what was going on there. No, it was a power move. It was a it move was a re- to, oh, to he, lay he claim to that, inheritance. Yeah, it's not just what the action was, it's what the action represented. Since, you know, and you go to David, it makes me think of David's last days. Mm-hmm. Um, Because you have the question of who David's successor will be. Will it be Solomon or will it be Adonijah? Uh, and so it's weird because you get to first, uh, you know, you get to first Kings and David's final days. Why in the world do they lead off with the fact that David had this woman to keep him warm, whether that's uh, literal or euphemistic, by the name of Abishag? And even after Solomon gets the endorsement to be king, you hear that Adonijah makes this strange request. And what's his strange request? He wanted he asked Bathsheba to ask King Solomon if he could marry Abishag. And if you read that through our Western lenses, then Solomon's response seems way over the top. Uh, Solomon exiles the priest who put that in Adonijah's mind, and Adonijah gets what? Oh, and I've got it right in front of me. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And then it goes on and says that he had someone sent to kill Adonijah. We're reading that as Westerners and go, dude, man, she he just wanted to marry this pretty girl. (laughs) My gosh. Like, <laughs> but Sol- Solomon was keen enough to recognize what the request represented. It's a power move. It's a power move. He's laying claim to the throne. Solomon recognizes it as an act of, uh, you know, he's trying to usurp leadership. He's he's using a woman to lay claim to something else. <laughs> so, and we're arguing that's exactly what Ham is doing in Genesis it's, 9. It's funny. I read in a commentary once when Adonijah goes to Bathsheba because Bathsheba is presented as... 
as in the text as one who who, who plays both sides and can is not uh, foreign to some trickery herself. But when Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and says, "Hey, will you ask?" Oh, sure, I'll ask the king for you. Like Bathsheba went in eyes wide open. She knew exactly what Solomon was going to say. Yeah, I'll ask my son. But regardless, they would have interpreted that as a power move. And it goes back here to Genesis 9. And, and by the way, for our, for our listeners, in case you don't know, part of the reason is Bathsheba is Solomon's mother, but she's not Adonijah's mother. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. She, she, she's working in the interest of her kid. Yeah. 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 As all good mamas do. All right. So we, we need to wrap up, but um, we're out of time here. But before we do, I will say I am seeing parallels here already because it seems to me that, that all of this stems from a desire for somebody to be, get into a position that was not appointed to them. And that seems very uh, familiar, something that we've seen over and over again in the, these first nine chapters of Genesis. And as a closing comment from what you just said, one of the ways that I think we know we're getting close to the actual t- interpretation is that when you land on it, immediately you start to think of other things that it connects to. As opposed to an outlier, it's actually an integral part of the story. That's what, in my mind, reinforces this as a legitimate interpretation. All right. Well, then, that's means, motive, opportunity. I'm ready to, I'm ready to put down the gavel. Ham, guilty, lock him up. <laughs> and you, too, can also make a power move by subscribing to the Better Than Fiction Bible podcast every <laughs> Tuesday morning. New episode. Please. Please like, subscribe, help us spread spread the word a little bit farther. And we will see you next week for part three of this most scandalous topic. See you. See you next time. Shalom. This is Ground Control to Major Tom.